please turn with me to Acts chapter 14 as we continue our study in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts 14 in its entirety today. This will actually be wrapping up Paul's first journey, and he'll have several cities that he's going to be visiting. Before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord, ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it because we lack understanding and we lack wisdom in and of ourselves. We need you for those things. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be here with us, that you would show us from your word how we should live, what we ought to believe concerning you, how we can minister to a lost world that needs to hear your name. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. As I read through this text today, it made me think of one of my favorite television shows, and that's Seinfeld. Some of you may watch Seinfeld. It's about 20 years old now, but it's probably never going to stop being funny, ever. One of the recurring themes is the idea that if people believe we are something, we can probably fake our way through it and continue that something. And it happens all the time in that show. It's kind of like a reversal of the, you know, the Disney adage, if you believe you can be anything. Well, in this case, if people believe you can be something, then maybe you can. And in Seinfeld, of course, it leads to many hilarious kind of situations. George is one of the main characters, and this happens to him a lot. He hates his current situation no matter what it is, and he's always trying to pretend. Always. And then Kramer is another main character, and he finds himself in really odd situations through no fault of his own a lot of times. One time, he walked into this big skyscraper, New York City investment firm, just to use the restroom because they have the best restrooms in town, is what he says. He walks out and he sees someone toying with a coffee machine and walks over to like help them fix it. And all of a sudden, all of the employees in this big investment firm are summoned to a very important meeting. And of course, Kramer is asked to go into the meeting as well, and he does. And the next several days, he actually pretends to work there, like dresses up in a suit and everything. And, and he actually does until he has to produce some work of his own. They, figure out that he's not trained in business at all. Uh, in our text today, Paul and Barnabas are continuing their journey through the cities of modern-day Turkey and Cyprus. And as they do so, they're going to be met with many false ideas about who they are, uh, one being very malicious and another initially being very good, but it kind of, but it's accidental. For two, for the two men who want nothing more than to preach the truth about another man, Jesus Christ, it presents a problem for their ministry. Many times, I think even in our own ministries, we'll, we have to deal with those kinds of misconceptions about who we are, about who we think we are, about our motives for what we do. Christians are thought of as many things in our modern modern culture, from the highest reputation to the lowest reputation. At many times, it's deserved on both ends. But how should we consider ourselves? How should we view our ministry to the lost? 
How does their view of us affect our message? I think these are very important questions we're going to dig into in the text today. We'll consider three main points looking at the three big cities that they've visited. Villains in Iconium, gods in Lystra, and servants in Antioch. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Acts chapter 14. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 14, starting at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country and they continued to preach the gospel now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet he was crippled from birth and had never walked he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him seeing that he had faith to be well said in a loud voice stand upright on your feet and he sprung up and began walking and when the crowd saw that Paul had what Paul had done they lifted up their voices saying to the Lyconian The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of nature like you, or with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all the things that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When the disciples gathered about him, they rose, or he rose up and entered the city, and the next day went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples and returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken a word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And And they remained no little time 
with the disciples. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. A lot going on here in this chapter, a lot of traveling around. This chapter wraps up Paul's first of his missionary journeys, which likely took the better part of three years to do that. So, again, we just read a couple of chapters, but we have to consider this is time. This is a long time that's going on here, a long time for people to be traveling about in a day where it wasn't easy to get from point A to point B. And during this time, he spends most of his time in the cities that make up the Roman province of Galatia, which is where a lot of these cities are from. There is not a city named Galatia. It's kind of an area. And so Paul will later write a letter to those cities, which we're very familiar with, which was meant to be circulated throughout all those different churches there. So this is kind of, you can see the genesis of where he those churches began and then why he was kind of writing that letter to them. What's the primary thrust of the book of Galatians? The gospel of Jesus Christ against the works-based salvation preached by the Jews that were trying to kill Paul and Barnabas. As we've studied through the last few chapters, you can definitely see why that was necessary. Hopefully you're also able to see the letter, what the letter of Galatians is still necessary for the church today. Absolutely. We still struggle with the gospel. As Christians, it is a message that we must always hold dear lest we go astray. One thing that we will continue to come, that will continue to come out as we read more about the work that Paul is going to do is how he always met hardship. There wasn't a lot of easy times for Paul, and some of that was his calling. Remember the Lord said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Part of that was his calling. Part of that is just the call of the Christian mission work. We are all doing the work of missions. We are all preaching some message to some audience. The content of that message is really totally up to us. The message that contains the gospel will inevitably meet conflict because Jesus is so polarizing. Not us. We easily kind of fit in to the group. Jesus did not, and he never will. He is very polarizing. It's either good or bad. You either believe in him or you don't. There's no middle ground. No one feels indifferent about Jesus. He is either their friend or their enemy. Again, no one can ride the fence. And as a messenger, we will constantly be met with obstacles that would challenge that assertion brings us to the first point. They were villains in Iconium. So remember they were in this city called Antioch of Pisidia and as they left they were shaking the dust off their feet. A strong symbology in the Jewish culture kind of kind of letting go of those people. And who was it they were letting go of? The Jewish people. But where do they go immediately? The synagogue in the next city. This was their way. They could have discounted the Jews altogether. But Paul wouldn't do that. He loved the Jewish people. And he talked about that many times. And as a result of his preaching in the synagogue in Iconium, many Jews and Gentiles came to the faith. Now at Iconium, verse 1, they entered together in the Jewish synagogue, spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. So again, we have this mass kind of conversion What's going to happen in a mass conversion in the synagogue that we have learned so far in this book? 
It's going to stir up trouble. Look at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. They poisoned their minds against the brothers. They poisoned their minds. Another translation may say that they embittered them. They caused them to be bitter. You kind of get the idea here. It's very similar to what happens all the way back in Genesis 3, is it not? Adam and Eve believe what the Lord tells them up to that point. They were doing what the Lord told them until a serpent comes along and plants a little seed of doubt. He embittered them against the Lord. You will not surely die. He doesn't want you to eat the fruit because you'll be like him. This is what's going on there in the synagogue. The Jews are saying you don't want to listen to this Paul and Barnabas. They don't have the truth. Obviously, this is a blatant lie, but it's the same lie that we've been believing ever since. A few things for us here. This is common. This kind of stirring up and poisoning minds. It will continue to happen until the day Jesus come back, comes back and puts an end to all the speculation. He'll settle the disputes when he returns. There will be no doubts at all who he is. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. We read over and over in Scripture. But until then, there will be this kind of dissension, even in the church. Some will believe. Some will not. Some will make sure that others hate Christians, hate the messenger, by spreading this type of dissension. They can't just simply not believe and go on. They have to make sure everyone doesn't believe. It's not enough to simply deny the claims of Christ. They must make the lives of Christians miserable at the same time. How do we combat this? Well, you can definitely point to examples of this. You've probably all faced this to one degree or another. We face this even in our secular world where we have people that are stirring up trouble for non-Christian reasons or non-spiritual reasons. But ultimately, this all points back to that. We can't change our message. That's the important thing. Verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done at their hands. They bore witness. They continued to be there preaching boldly, and the Lord saw to it, that his word went forth. They didn't believe what was said about them either. That's very important. They could have believed it. They could have believed the poison that the others were saying even about themselves. As Christians, they could have simply pretended that they weren't and slinked to the back and no longer been an issue. I see this a lot in my profession at school. Kids who claim to be Christians but then change their tune when truth, or when questions about the truth that they believe comes out. It's really easy for them to do. And I think a lot of times Christian students get picked on because as if they're the only ones that do that. We see this everywhere else too. Because it's easy to pretend when it gives us a more favorable outcome. And many times to profess the truth of Jesus Christ provides us with an unfavorable outcome. Secondly, 
we have to constantly check ourselves to make sure that we're not the ones doing the poisoning. There is only one accuser of the brethren, Satan. He does not need any help. He is constantly at work. He doesn't need, again, he doesn't need us to add to the pile of accusation. We should not be doing that. We call a spade a spade. We call out false teaching. But when the gospel is being preached by faithful men and women, we support them, we honor their work, even if we don't see eye to eye with their method. That that kind of thing can arise from jealousy, which we've talked about with the Jews that we've seen in the book of Acts. Sadly, it happens inside churches a lot, even between churches. Third, I think it's not wrong to flee sometimes, which is what Paul and Barnabas do at the end of this. They, they have to flee the city because they're about to be attacked physically. Sometimes it might be best to just walk away. This is what they do. There are times when it's right to stand and fight, but don't compromise the message or the, your character in the process, but there are times when it just needs to just walk away. Remember, the Lord works on the heart. He has mercy on whomever He pleases. We only need to be faithful to the message. We don't need to see ourselves as their last hope or anything like that. Jesus is their last hope. We are just faithful to what He's asked us to preach. And that brings us to the next idea. They were gods at Lystra. So next they go to this town called Lystra and they meet a crippled man who was not able to use his feet. He had never walked. He's apparently listening to Paul preach. Paul can tell that he's listening intently. He can see that this man is crippled. There's some sort of spiritual connection that's going on to where Paul feels led to heal this man. The Lord has granted him as an apostle to do the signs and wonders that he is doing and so he tells this man rise and walk stand upright on your feet and he sprang up and began walking pretty incredible and so you can imagine in this city that is was ruled by the Greeks and their giant pantheon of gods and is now ruled by the Romans which basically just kind of erased the names and put new names and worship the same gods. They're looking at Paul and Barnabas and they're wondering, how is this man now walking? And so they just attribute to them. They say, well, obviously this is Zeus and Hermes that have come down here. They believe the wrong thing. They even go out and get animals to start sacrificing to Paul and Barnabas. Can you believe this? Can you imagine being in this situation where you're simply being faithful to the message you've been asked to preach And the people believe that you're some kind of God. It's through no fault of Paul or Barnabas. What did they do? They they tried to dissuade them, right? Uh, Paul, when he saw what the crowds had done, they lifted their voices. um, Sorry, verse, verse 14. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out and they said, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of nature with you. We're not the gods that you think we are. I mean, this is this would be incredible for Paul and Barnabas at this time. They probably could have gotten away with just about anything. You can probably all point to this type of thing happening today as well. Obviously, we don't call people Zeus and Hermes, but we just think of them as that. Especially when I was in youth ministry, I saw this quite a bit. 
some speaker would come to a camp or a conference or some sort of weekend thing and he would bring his three sermons and his you know really nice gelled hair and all of them would talk about how awesome he was and then he would spend maybe a few minutes talking about his conversion and then another section about how awesome he was and then all the students every time would fall in love with whoever that speaker was instead of the one that he was supposed to be preaching about. The girls would literally fall in love with him and begin planning their weddings. The boys would kind of seethe for a bit with jealousy, but then they would fall right in behind the guys, his little fan club. I watched this happen over and over again. I actually, actually had to stop going to those sorts of events because of that. It was just people worship. That person would leave. They would take their three sermons, their bottle of hell jail, someplace else, some other unsuspecting group. But it's not just youth ministry. It's easy to think that that's just youth ministry, but adults are easily wooed as well. We can sometimes forget the message of our favorite preacher or our teacher and just focus on the person so many times. We can do this in ministry. We can easily get caught up in sharing the gospel and doing other things and how it brings attention to ourselves and we quickly forget that it's not about Jesus but it's that it's not about us but it's about Jesus we think that it's about us we just eat up all the attention forgetting the whole time that God does not share his glory with anyone which is why Paul corrects them he even preaches at them the nature of who we are we're not we're not like God we are man He's the one that has done all of these things for us. He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without a witness. For He did good by giving rains from heaven and the fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even though you didn't believe in Him, He's been so good to you. And He tries to do that. He preaches Christ rather than Himself. But they weren't deterred. They continue to believe in this new Zeus and Hermes that have come down until, of course, they, uh, the next few days, drug Paul and Barnabas out, and, or at least Paul, and stoned him. A few things for us here. The content of our message is key. Who is it about? You know, the, the youth guy who comes, and, and so many times, the message was always about him. They would talk an hour about their past exploits and then three minutes about Jesus. What do the kids grab a hold of? That dude is so cool. Not Jesus changed him from the crazy idiot that he was. But he was so cool when he was that crazy idiot. The content of our message is key. Paul at Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas weren't at fault here. People are going to worship God. We, we can't help that. They're going to make a God out of just about anything. All right, Two strangers walk into town. A few minutes later, they're gods. We can't let our own story surpass the story or try to get in the way of the story of our Savior. Does our story focus on Christ or does it focus on us? Do we want people to come away hearing and knowing more about us or more about Christ? Sometimes just a simple question from a trusted friend can fix this. Just ask your friends, do I talk about myself too much? They may 
surprise you. I've had to do this several times in our own life. When the people we minister to want to point to us, we just point them back to Christ. If not, we will start to believe quickly that we are their Savior as well. Look at the Paul, look at the message that Paul corrected them. We're men. We're just as bad as you. Turn away from your vanity. There's a real and living God that you should be worshiping, and He's not you. He's not me. He is the one that gives all good things. Not me. When people think that you're a superstar, it's really hard to tell them that you're not. And when you think that someone is a superstar, it's hard to see them any other way. The answer to both problems is Jesus, of course. He is the superstar. He is the one that actually does the saving. And then that brings me to the last point. They were servants at Antioch. So they had this kind of tumultuous ending at Lystra. The, the Jews from Iconium and Antioch of Pisidia follow them into the city, basically, and stir up more trouble. And the ones that were worshiping them one day dragged them out and stoned them the next. But somehow they make it. The Lord was good to Paul and Barnabas. And they travel back through some of the cities that they've already been to and some new cities. And what does the, the text tell us? They were strengthening, verse 22, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They're learning this firsthand. They appointed elders in every church, praying and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They appointed elders in every church. We're going to talk much more about this as we continue through the book of Acts because we'll see it several more times, including next week as we look at chapter 15. We're going to talk about that, but it deserves, I think, pointing out now. Every city, in every city, multiple elders were appointed to serve the churches. Why? Just go back and read what happened in the few days that Paul and Barnabas were there. They needed leaders to lead those churches, to see them flourish, to help them grow. It wasn't about Paul. They weren't so tied to the one that started those churches that they weren't going to be able to live without him. Paul rose up leaders in those places so that they could flourish when he was gone. Paul had no... He had, he had no thoughts of going back. He didn't know what he was going to be doing. So he appointed leadership so that they would be able to flourish without him. It wasn't about him. It was about the work of Jesus Christ. These men were going to lead the church just like Paul would have done had he been there. He's going to later write to them. As an apostle, he had authority over them, yes. But those churches couldn't wait until Paul's letters came. Or till he came himself. They needed leadership. This will continue to happen throughout the rest of the book. And it's happened since then in churches all over, even through today. I think it's, that's why we see that model do well in churches today. So they return to the church that sent them out. Antioch and Syria, the first place where they, where they began their journey. And they, were, they prayed, remembering the Lord sent them out. When they got home, what did they do? Of course, they shared stories, right, about how great they did and how they felt about everything and all, all of those things, right? No. They declared all that God had done with them. 
and how he had opened the door of faith for the Gentiles. Who was their story about? Jesus. Who got the credit? Whose name was praised? Jesus Christ. Not the missionaries. Sure, they did a great work. They were servants. They were called to serve. They did that. We commend them here on this earth. But when they came back, was their message about how awesome they were in the work that they did? No, it was about Christ. If we aren't careful, we'll start to believe the things that we say about ourselves, the things that other people say about us, either bad or good. Both are wrong. We know that this is the case. So who should we talk about instead? As a young preacher, I preached a sermon. It was actually the first sermon on a Sunday morning that I had preached at the church that we were at in Mississippi and Sunday evening services and Wednesday services. So I kind of had to work up the ladder. You know, I started preaching on Wednesdays and then I kind of got the green light to start on Sunday nights. And then Sunday morning came. It was the big show, right? I got to preach on a Sunday morning. After the sermon, I was expected to go to the back of the congregation. I guess this is some churches still do this, I don't know. And I was expected to go stand in the back and kind of greet everyone as they left the church. And every person, every single one that came through, great job, Mike. We really enjoyed that. Fantastic. That was a great sermon. All of these things. As if my head wasn't already big enough to begin with, I was going to have trouble walking out to the car after speaking with everyone, having to drag my head behind me. I felt like I was about 50 feet tall and made of diamonds. After hearing all of that, it was kind of nice. So I get home, and I call my best friend, who was a pastor in Memphis at the time, and told him how great it went and how great I was. And he said, don't believe any of it. Instead, go back and review the message that you just preached, which he knew. It's just the plain and simple gospel that I'm a sinful man and I need Jesus Christ to save me. And this quickly deflated my head back to its normal, still large size. Was he being mean to me? No, he was reminding me of the truth that I had discarded so quickly after I had preached it. The truth, Jesus died to save me because I was not great and I did not do a good job he saved me because I needed saving and didn't know it was it wrong to acknowledge my accomplishment no was it wrong to take credit for something that God accomplished through me absolutely let's quickly name the things that we can do on our own without God's help that list is empty we can't do anything so who do we give credit for everything that we do anytime we do it? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, this is a very freeing doctrine, particularly as we plant this church and we do ministry here in Murray, Kentucky. God uses us to do his work and we give him all the glory. And he'll use that glory that we give him in order to do what? More of his work here. And guess who gets all the credit? He does. Guess who gets to partake of the benefits 
of that work that he is doing and will continue to do, we do his people, his church. When we give glory to ourselves, then we are expected to do things that we can only pretend to be good at. But when we give glory and honor and praise to God, we can expect him to continue to do good things because he does good things. He's good at them. He will always do good things for his people. Brothers and sisters, don't believe what people say about you. You aren't a savior, but you aren't ordinary either. You are a servant of the Most High God, a child of the King, a messenger to the only Savior the world needs and the only Savior they could hope for. So let us be what He has called us to be. Let's go down in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, it is very easy for us to believe the things that we think about ourselves and what people say about us. And so we are thankful for the message here today in Acts 14. The message is you, and it continues to be you. It's not the messenger. It is the plain truth of the gospel. Lord, help us to do, help us to preach that plain truth and help us to be the ones that you've called us to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen.